Sometime around about 1780, a widowed farmer was trying to mind his own business and raise his family and stay out of the rapidly heating political upheaval in colonial North America. As a veteran of the French and Indian Wars, he knew what war meant and wanted nothing to do with any rebellious uprisings. Unfortunately, his oldest son, an enthusiastic idealist wanting to prove his manhood and make a difference, joined the Continental Army just as the American Revolution got going. In the years that followed, the farmer would lose another son, see his plantation burn to the ground, and launch himself into the Revolutionary War with a literal vengeance. This is the setting of today's film, as Gordon and I bring you History Month. While Jeff takes a holiday, we're tackling the 2000 Roland Emmerich Mel Gibson epic, The Patriot, on episode 26 of Celluloid Days. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're a stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Hello, folks. While Jeff is away on a much-needed summer break for the month of July, I'm bringing in my spouse, Gordon, who happens to be a history guy. So welcome to History Month. It's going to end up being a lot of westerns because summertime, I don't know. But this week, for our first film of July, we're dipping back to the birth of the United States of America for a look at Roland Emmerich's historical epic, The Patriot. Before the independence of one nation. And, uh, yes, what nation is that? An American nation. There is no such nation, and to speak of one is treason. We are citizens of an American nation. And our rights are being threatened by a tyrant 3,000 miles away. Since we're doing kind of a two-mic show, we're going to get off script and just kind of ramble through an outline. And um, I think what we're going to start with is a little bit of background on the film, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll kick that ball rolling. So The Patriot, which many of you have probably seen, was nominated for three Academy Awards. It was nominated for Best Cinematography, Best Original Score, John Williams going to do, and Best Sound. Yay! It also received several Guild Awards, including the American Society of Cinematographers Award to Caleb Deschanel for Outstanding Achievement in Cinematography, and uh, you'll, if you see, if you haven't seen the movie, watch it and you'll see why. It's just beautiful. And also the Hollywood Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Guild Award for Best Period Makeup and Best Period Hairstyling. Um, dur now, during development, Emmerich and his team consulted with experts at the Smithsonian Institution and other places to try and get right the set, the props, the costumes, etc. Um, they had a historical advisor, Rex Ellis. He even recommended the Gullah Island village as an appropriate place for Martin's family to hide in the middle of the film. And they actually incorporated that into the film. Additionally, screenwriter Robert Rodot read through a lot of journals and letters of actual colonists as part of his preparation. And, you know, it shows. The film really puts you there. I am a particular fan of costume designer Deborah Lynn Scott, who really did her homework 
on this film as well. Now, initially, her designs, especially for the soldiers, were about as close to historically accurate as you could get. But you'll see in the final film that no plan survives contact with the enemy. And Gordon will help me <laughs> discuss that a little bit, how the director kind of overrode a lot of her design decisions for whatever his reasons were, and we ended up with some weird stuff. Um, and also, as far as horse tack goes, uh, you end up on a big film with Wranglers dealing with that, and oh yeah, we'll get together historical stuff, and they did okay, but one of the actors who plays uh, Villeneuve in the film, Chucky Cario, he really went crazy. He's like, he went like Sam Elliott and was like, if I'm going to wear it, if I'm going to be sitting on it, it's going to be right. And he brought his own horse tack, which was absolutely period correct. And uh, we can talk about a little bit about that later. He, he ended up not being able to use it until the very end. Again, unions, wranglers, stuff and stuff and stuff. And I will just also before I hand it over to Gordon for the historical setting. Full disclosure, Gordon and I both worked on this film. <laughs> so so we, we might bring up some things that you're not going to read anywhere, and we might have a little bit of bias one way or the other on things. But uh, yeah, we were there. Gordon was uh, one of the trainers for the military, including the infantry, but also he ended up in the Green Dragoons, the bad guy cavalry, basically commanding them so that the lead actors could look good on, on camera. So that was kind of fun. And then I ended up in the gun truck cleaning muskets every day. <laughs> so, so I always like to work on these films too when I get a chance. Anywho, let's hand it over to Gordon and he's gonna give us the historical setting for the film. The historical setting, the basis for the story of course, is uh, <clears throat> the American Revolution. The, if you want, the American War for Independence. It lasted from 1775 to 1782, as far as the actual conflict, the clash of arms goes. Uh, it started long before that and didn't really end till 1815, if you really want to get down to it. But our story begins after five years of war. And that five years of war had primarily been in the Northeast. New England, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania and whatnot, hadn't really touched the South very much. There had been an attempted um, capture of South Carolina, the Charleston Harbor earlier, but it had proven to, <laughs> it failed. Uh, the second attempt in 1780 was successful. The character of Benjamin Martin, which was played by Mel Gibson, was based on four different men, uh, all of whom were very important to the cause of the revolution of American independence, uh, specifically in the South. Uh, the first one was Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox, but also Daniel Morgan, who was General Washington's man on the scene, as it were, and commander of the Regiment of Riflemen in the Continental Army. There was also Andrew Pickens, who was a South Carolinian and uh, Thomas Sumter, the Carolina Gamecock, and interestingly, Fort Sumter of Civil War fame was named after him. All four men had very illustrious careers during and after the War for Independence, and they were all instrumental in driving the British forces out of the Carolinas and frustrating General Cornwallis's plans for the pacification of the area. The beginning in which uh, Benjamin Martin's home is burned to the ground by vengeful British officer 
Lieutenant Colonel Tavington, played by Jason Isaacs, is based on an actual experience, actually two, by both Thomas Sumter, although at the time he was an officer in the South Carolina Patriot military, as opposed to Martin, who had in the movie is opposed to the war, and Andrew Pickens, who was on parole from the British at the time his house was burned. He, when the uh, British took Charleston, you may go, okay, well, this the game is up, so we'll we'll quit. I'll go I'll get a parole from, from the British military, and I'll go back home and be a farmer. Uh, when they came and burned his house down, he decided the parole was no longer viable, and because they had broken the rules. The character of Colonel Tavington is based on the real-life British officer Bannister Tarleton. Uh, interestingly, he and Jason Isaacs were both second sons from Liverpool, which was kind of cool. Uh, I got that. Typecasting. Yes, typecasting. I actually got that straight from from uh, Jason Isaacs. He said, oh, yeah, we're both second sons from Liverpool. Anyway, he thought that was cool. Uh, but he was in command of the British Legion. Uh, the character came into being in the script was somewhat different from the actual historical individual, so they couldn't use the name Tarleton anymore, so they had to change it from Tarleton to Tavington. The British Legion itself, which, which Tarleton was in command of, was rather interesting. Uh, it was made up of three components, two of which were cavalry, one infantry, but they were American loyalists. Almost all of them were Americans recruited in New York and New Jersey uh, as kind of a prequel to the American Civil War where you get northern troops going to the south and proceeding to burn things. And they portray this in the film. I mean, they've got Adam Baldwin's character and um, Jameson. Jameson Jameson Price. Price. Yes. A beautiful voice. Oh, my goodness. But, yeah, those two gentlemen definitely play Americans. Uh, It could have been pushed a little harder, I think. It would have been very interesting for the for the audience to see that, wait a minute, this is also a civil war going on here. These are Americans fighting Americans un- and these under British control. And so I think it, it could have been pushed a little harder. Well, but. this is, we're going to run into this again and again in this film where the ultimately it's the director who has the final say, especially when you're somebody like Roland Emmerich who directed Stargate and a lot of other big IPs. So he had some weight and he put the kibosh on several things in this film that were super cool and super historical, but he thought, oh, it'll just confuse our dumb audience, so we'll just dumb it down and simplify yeah. things. The British forces under General Cornwallis, William Cornwallis, who, by the way, later had a very illustrious career in India, the forces under him had been led to understand that by invading the South, particularly the Carolinas, uh, they'd be welcomed with open arms, and the whole area would be pacified and returned to the crown's control. Uh, they were in for somewhat of a shock after they captured Charleston in their second attempt, and they were rudely received by the locals who really didn't take kindly to the idea. The story, the, the Patriot, is really about the campaign by the British to pacify the area and by the Patriots to defend it. Okay. Now, uh, we're going to go into our things we didn't like and things we liked about the movie. We're trying to keep this simple because if I don't have an outline, we're going to talk for three hours and nobody wants that. So, okay. So for me, three things that I didn't like about the movie, one of them was Jolie Richardson, who plays our female love interest. She's the sister of Frances Marion's dead wife. 
Actually, it's Benjamin Martin. Oh, I said Francis Marion, the actual historical character. Oops. Yeah, anyway, Mel Gibson. Anyway, <laughs> her hair. It was pretty good at the beginning of the film, and then at some point it just goes all Dr. Quinn medicine woman, and she's got her hair down all the time, which is ridiculous for an adult woman. She would at least have it up somehow and probably covered with a cap because you try to keep your hair clean when you're not, when you can't just go grab a shower whenever you want. Bathing is more of a, a pain in the butt back then. So you keep your hair clean. So it just gets annoying and that's, that's a hobby horse of mine. The, my number two on that list is uh, wardrobe offenses. And it's, as I said previously, the costume designer did her homework and did her research and she came up with amazing stuff. I, like we've mentioned, Gordon was in the cavalry on this and so he has firsthand experience with her costume designs and how wonderful they were in the beginning. And then Roland Emmerich decided he wanted everybody's pants to be tighter oh, for yeah. some goofy reason. It, it was really bizarre because the, um, the breeches that men wore at the time uh, of course, they stopped at the knee, just below the knee. But you had to have, if you wanted to sit down and not have them pull up over the knee, you had to have rather they're, full They're gathered seat. into a yoke at the back. So when you're standing up, they look a little bit baggy. But when you sit down, all of a sudden, they fit. And guess what we were doing all the time when we were on horses? Sitting. Sitting. Yeah. So our the breeches got pulled up over our knees. So we ended up having to wear either women's tights or super long socks to keep from having this big gap of white flesh yeah all everybody's knees poking out on camera and it you know he basically he wasn't thinking the costume designer didn't argue and it ended up being a real pain in the butt for the rest of the movie because everybody had to and, and did it to the leads too jason isaacs had to do the same thing i mean they, he just basically wrecked everybody's pants so that was annoying um, Jolie Richardson's wardrobe on Gullah Island, I get it, they're on the run and it's hot and their thing and their stuff, but she ends up just kind of running around in her underwear. Um, she's just wearing her stays or her jumps with nothing else. And again, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman hair. So it just becomes fantasy land at some point. And it, for someone who isn't into history, fine, whatever, it's romantic looking. But for people who have a clue about historical costuming, it just takes you right out of the movie. It's really annoying. And by the way, Stays is basically a corset. Oh yeah, sorry, it's her corset. For those who aren't into it. Yeah, also, and this is really minor, but Benjamin Martin's retro boot garters. He's basically wearing a fashion. It looks really cool. He's got these little garter things holding up his boots that go around above and below his knee. But that I believe that is a very like several decades earlier fashion and he probably wouldn't have been wearing that. So Oh, and by the way, if you look real close at his boots in the last scene in the battle because it was grass and it was dry smooth leather soles slip oh so he's running up, around yeah they cut the the soles of the boots off and he was wearing sneakers oh. underneath them why didn't they just glue treads to the bottom of his boots why did they do anything yeah well whatever i was not I in know. the wardrobe department so yeah it's you know it's movie stuff don't don't look at that in the movie just <laughs> no, pretend it doesn't but matter. it was just kind of a funny yeah. thing yeah Anywho, um, we've also, oh, Gordon's going to talk about some wardrobe faux pas in his bit too, so I'll just move on to my next thing uh, that I did not like, and that is Tavington, or Tarleton in history. He's a classic bad guy, but I think they went kind of overboard making him this crazed genocidal maniac with no motivation for it. I mean, 
there is motivation for Tarleton and what he did in real life, but they never talk about that in the film, so he just comes across as a giant psychopath. Well, they do show that he's very ambitious. Yes. Which he was, indeed. Um, so you know, that is, the, I guess, their motivation. But he didn't burn down churches full no. of people. No, 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 no. <clears throat> he, he rode his horse up some stairs. Yes, he did. Ride, yeah, <laughs> he, he did some goofy Yeah, in Virginia, things. he did ride his, his horse up a set of stairs that I think was the Carter Plantation. Something. And, smashed, and swung at somebody with his sword and took a neck out of the, the, the banister, uh, which is still there, rather interestingly. Yeah. But, yeah, he didn't go... He wasn't the the evil mustache twirling yeah, melodrama guy. Yeah, yeah. no. Was... The British did understand that they have, if they won, they would still have to live with these people. Mm-hmm. So in a civil war situation, if you're too rough with your opponents, then you lose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My bonus, I know we're only supposed to have three, but I put a bonus one in, and that was cleaning 650 muskets every night. That was the thing I didn't like about this movie. To this day, I have joint issues with my thumbs. (laughs) But uh, what eventually happened was the armorer, Harry Lou, great guy, finally decided he was killing us all, and he rented a heated, a heated power washer. Who ever heard of such a thing? And that basically saved our lives so we could uh, quickly clean and dry all the muskets every night. And that was awesome. So, Gordon, what were three things that you didn't like? Uh, To begin with, I was rather appalled by the choice of putting my green dragoons, my boys, uh, in red coats with green facings rather than green coats with red facings as the originals were. Why would they call them the Green Dragoons if they're dressed in red? Uh, supposedly this was done because Emmerich figured most Americans were too stupid to understand that the guys in green are actually red coats too, uh, or something like that. But it could have been, again, it could have been a learning experience for the audience to be informed that these British troops are actually Americans too, and they're dressed a little differently because it's frontier troops. There's a whole lot of really interesting things that could have been, at the very least, hit upon, you know, from a, a, some angle or another. Um, now, it, a lot of my complaints have nothing to do with the film itself. It has to do with a lot of the, the, the military aspects of it. Well, it's like the epaulet thing, the epaulet argument. Oh yeah. yeah. Explain explain this for our <laughs> for our audience. Okay. So in the real British military at the time, uh, they had epaulets for the British officers These to show their rank. These are the things that go on the shoulders, sometimes with little fringy bits. Yes. And junior officers, lieutenants, only had one of them. Okay, one side or the other, depending upon their rank, and the other was free. It didn't have anything on it. It was, bare. It was the other shoulder was bare. The Costumers had actually made one for me. I actually had one. They showed me, here's your epaulette. You're going to get this on your shoulder. Because, again, she did her homework. Yeah, because I was the only lieutenant in the whole thing. But I didn't get to because Emmerich thought, well, wait a minute. People think he lost one. It's stupid to have one epaulette, not two. But that's how they did it. Oh, well. Again, lost opportunity. I don't like it when filmmakers dumb things down so they won't confuse their audience instead of doing it right so 
people will say, oh, that's awesome. And someone has a question. Oh, how come that guy only ever had one epaulette? Well, here's why. And now you've learned something, especially in this day and age of the Internet, when you can look up anything you want right now. Yeah, and you can educate people. I mean, that's why he went to the Smithsonian Institution people to to get proper information here. Well, he lost a big chance right there yeah. to educate. And then it give, it doesn't give you any moral high ground. So now when people criticize the film, they can say, yeah, well, it's wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. This is wrong. That is wrong. That is wrong. Instead of saying, well, this confused some people, but it's actually correct. And now you know. Yes. The second thing that bugged me was the artillery that they had. Looks really cool. But it's enormous. You're not lugging these, what are basically siege guns, these huge 32-pounders. And by by the way, that means it shot a 32-pound ball, not that the gun itself was 32 pounds. (laughs) The iron ball that it shot out at, you know, supersonic speed was was what they used for measuring the size of the gun, the 32 pounds. These things required somewhere between 20 and 40 oxen to pull. You're not going to find those on the frontier. You're not going to cut. They had to make would have to make a huge road and grade it and stuff to drag these things. They didn't do that. What they did use for artillery, what Tarleton and Cornwallis had, were these little things called gallopers. They're these little little guns that weighed I don't know maybe 200 pounds at most, and the gun itself, the barrel, and fired a three-pound ball, and they had mounted on what was almost like a cart. It had actually had little you know things coming out to to put around on the other, each side of a horse so it could be pulled by one horse they were very handy little things and still pretty darned effective considering you know three pounds of iron going at about i don't know 1500 feet a second which is you know supersonic speed and that goes through all kinds of people and soft bits and things so it's still real effective but it wasn't these huge huge wonderful looking things that scared the heck out of everybody in the film. Yeah, you know, and I get why probably why he did that because in a big wide shot with long lenses, they read on camera and they look awesome. But again, it's ludicrous. It I mean, these things were made out of balsa wood and paper mache, yeah. so of course a couple of guys could move them around, but a real one, like you say, it would be up to its axles in the dirt oh, because yeah. it's so heavy and and you'd need a whole string of oxen to pull the darn thing hindsight is 2020 they could have had a scene early in the movie where cornwallis says yes i want these large guns of course he would have known better but anyway just for your audience's information and say no sorry sir we're an army on the move we're going to use these and they will be equally as effective right we're not trying to knock down castles or sink ships well exactly i mean the first battle for certain shows very much a european type conflict a european battle with large guns and all these guys lined up blasting away at each other uh, at very close range. That was really good. The realities of the American War were a little different. Not that everybody hid behind trees. That certainly wasn't the case. But it, it, but it was, it, was, it was really good in that regard. But I also, I really didn't like how they changed a lot of the history of the two major battles in the film. They're based on Guilford Courthouse and Cowpens, and they turned them into th- something they weren't. Like Guilford Courthouse was not a standard European battle. They were, it was much more confused, but of course that's hard to put on film. Chaos on film doesn't, <laughs> it's already chaotic, uh, but it doesn't, 
doesn't show very well. But the first one was a draw, not an actual defeat for the Americans, as is shown in the film. Uh, well, Cowpens, it was actually a real major defeat for the British. That's the last battle. The in second the film. battle, yeah, the big battle in the at the end. It actually saw Bannister Tarleton in command, rather than his superior general William Cornwallis. And of course, he didn't have a sneering, you know, aide de camp telling him how great he was either. The reality of the battle, while it was touched upon in the film, was to me a whole lot more interesting. And if you want, if you really want to get into it, there's a beautiful book called Devil of a Whipping, The Battle of Cowpens by Lawrence Babbitts. Aha. Uh, yeah. R- really cool guy. We met there at, on the site. He was one of the soldiers. He got to play soldier as one of the Americans. So that was that was fun for him. And he's a uh, professor of underwater archaeology. So anyway, uh, interesting stuff. Now let's talk about the things we liked because we want to end on a positive note here. Uh, I know I whined about some of the costume design, but overall, the costume design was really good. I mean, typically, as per usual in a lot of these late, um, in recent years films, the background are really good. They really, they look natural. They look like they just stepped out of history. And the supporting cast are almost perfect. And I want Cornwallis's banyan, that beautiful yellow silk brocade banyan. No, it's mine. Oh, well, I'll want it for you. Okay. Um, yeah, that's that's just gorgeous. So those those are things I, I liked. And Jolie Richardson's wardrobe usually was really, really good. The children were all dressed like children. Although, again, one of the little girls had her hair down all the time, which it just wasn't done. You didn't have a hair and makeup person standing by to fix your children up every minute. They needed to be braided and put up under a cap so that they weren't filthy all the time. Anyway, rant. Uh, secondly, I thought the characters all had good arcs. And the story had a good arc. I, th- I thought just history aside, as just a story of a wartime epic, I thought it was good. I thought the, ri- the writer and director do a really good job of capturing that epic sweep of events of the time through the eyes of the people who were sort of stuck there and dealing with it. So I thought they did a good job. The way the kids are written. This is my number three. Usually I can't stand children in films and television because they're too precocious. They sound like adults and or they're just annoying as all get out. So I'm normally not a fan of kids in anything, but the kids in this film sound and act like kids. It's a good, good casting is a part of it, of course, but I just think the way they're written and also Mel Gibson as a dad with seven kids was really great with the kids and was natural with them. And so that helps. Oh, absolutely. There was a hilarious incident in which we were just sort of hanging around waiting during the filming at the beginning before the evil British burned down the, his house and, um, <clears throat> Us green dragoons are sort of hanging around in the front yard on our horses, and he's trying to entertain the children while they move cameras around. So he engaged in a burping contest <laughs> with these little bitty kids. There, the, there was much giggling. They, there, oh, my Lord. He was great with them. And, yeah, on, on any movie, moving camera and doing different setups takes time. On a big movie like this with hundreds of extras and effects and things, setups could take an hour or two, and you've got these little kids who you got to keep entertained, and he always did a great job with that. Yes, I was I was highly impressed with his abilities with these little kids. He 
He really worked well with So, them. Gordon, what are your three things that you liked? Um, I liked a whole lot of things about the movie, but these were the ones that popped into my head. Uh, I liked the fact that the cavalry are shown to be both elite troops, as they actually were, but also as the bad guys. Uh, cavalry historically have been used to harass enemies' armies, but they're also used against civilian populations because they're very mobile and they can come in fast, do their dirty deeds and leave before anybody can, you know, can go against them. Infantry, not so much. There's lots and lots of unpleasantness in any war, but especially in civil wars such as the American Revolution was, um, there's a lot of unpleasantness against everyone, civilians included. Uh, So that was actually a good thing that they highlighted. Is this your number two? Is that my number two? Yeah. Oh, no, this is, that was still on my number one. But my number two sort of segues into it. Uh, they really tried to get the soldier's life and uh, or the partisan's life uh, down pretty well. Again, lots of unpleasantness in war. Uh, partisans lead a very rough life. And the Martin's militia who were living out in the swamps uh, <laughs> were not living a, a jovial life at all. The soldiers under uh, Bannister Tarleton did not lead a jovial life either, but it was at least reasonably well supplied. And because they were more organized and whatnot, they could go out and liberate supplies from the local population. Oh, speaking of the swamp, I know it's very picturesque in the movie and it's a great location, it's a great setting, but the real life Benjamin Martin, who's the swamp fox. The swamp fox. Yeah, so he Mary. actually spent some time moving through the swamps. Oh, yeah. Yeah, down in the rice country, the lowlands of South Carolina. I mean, that's where he was from. He was intimately familiar with these swamps and whatnot. Um, again, there's, oh, boy, there's so much more really interesting stuff going on, which is sort of touched on with the, with the Gullah village. But there were some of these counties in the deep, southern, you know, uh, eastern regions, the lowlands, which according to research by one of our reenactors, the guy who was in charge of the infantry, actually, uh, there were whole counties in which no white people lived. It was all black people and they had black militias and all kinds of things like that. that so it'd be a perfect place for them to hide. Absolutely. Totally makes sense. Absolutely. Oh, also, I, I know you didn't have it on your list, but I thought that they did a really nice job with the hero guns in the movie. Oh, yes, absolutely. Hero uh, guns meaning the guns that the lead actors used. Yes. Uh, it was nice that the the, the young man, uh, Heath... Um, Ledger. Heath Ledger had a newer type long rifle that was his rifle, while his dad had an older, slightly older fashioned one because that was his hunting rifle and his war rifle from... 20 years before so uh it was really it was really well done actually almost 30 years before but it was that was really good uh, what I, the ones i wanted though were the pistols that uh that jason isaacs had oh those were beautiful <laughs> and they were all of these were made well except for the original that heath ledger broke uh <laughs> they were they were made by herschel house not Herschel House. Frank. It was Frank House. Herschel's his older brother. Frank House. <laughs> They're made by Frank House. They're both gunsmiths. Frank did a, a really wonderful job building these things. 
Uh, and he actually was on set with us for weeks and weeks and weeks helping to maintain them. He was really fun to work with. He was a hoot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This guy from, what is he from Bowling Green, Kentucky, wherever he's from. But, yeah. you know, he's been making long rifles all his life. And his wife actually made the hero, the gunslings and pouches and other things because she does brain tan leather work and porcupine quill work and mm -hmm. all this stuff so it was you know i mean talk about historically accurate oh that stuff was beautiful yeah. the the material culture was you know yeah wonderful yeah. in the film props to job. props to the prop master doug harlocker mm -hmm. who also did his research and went to the smithsonian everything and he they were constantly in the prop truck making and fixing props and doing things for this movie i mean just the detail you see when uh, Benjamin Martin goes to uh, to basically join up, and he meets with uh, General what's his name played by Chris Chris I can't remember he's a famous actor he's really good anyway and they do this close up of the map and there's all these little wooden arrows and markers for the different armies and that you know that stuff is all done by your prop department and their the attention to detail is so beautiful now they, speaking of that they didn't little tin soldiers or lead soldiers weren't really a thing quite yet so it's okay it's a but plot it's, point it's a it's a good plot point it's a plot point because those belong to his spoiler slain son and he's making them into bullets to go after the british with so yeah the firearms were so nice and in Beautiful. fact mel gibson liked his long rifle so much that he had frank build him and, and another one so that he could keep keep it and uh yeah and tomahawk oh he oh he did the tomahawk yeah. too oh yeah yeah because we got some inside dope on that yeah frank so that was fun uh so but lastly what i really 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 liked about the film was working on it I had an absolute blast working on that. And, um, well, you were basically in the cavalry for three and a half months. I was. I was in command of the cavalry for three and a half months. That was the best part. Um, I got to help recruit, but also organize, train, and lead these guys. Um, I even wrote the manual, which was kind of cool. I took some 18th century manual, cavalry manuals and modified, modified them a little bit. And that's what we did. Uh, I have some hilarious stories about that that, that we don't have really time for, <laughs> but it was it was wonderful. And the guys I worked with, my troops were just absolute, absolutely wonderful. You to, still keep in like, touch with some of them to oh, this yeah. day. Yeah, 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 still do, still yak with them. Um, Even though they're mostly East Coast guys, and we're on the West Coast. Yeah, but there's a couple guys out here that I'm still in communication with, and uh, it. They were great, and I really, really, really enjoyed it. It's probably one of the high points of my life was being able to do that. Awesome. Well, let's get into ratings. Historically, I give this a 7 out of 10 because they tried, and um, I think they did overall a pretty good job. What about you? They did a really good job. I put 7 out of 10, although it probably should be 8 out of 10. Uh, they had so much right that... Their major faux pas probably can be overlooked mm -hmm. uh, simply because it was just such a, a well-put-together film. And I just really liked all of their, well, again, their material culture. It was really good. Now, for the story, I give it a 9 out of 10 because I think it's a solid story. I Like I said previously, I thought the characters had good arcs. I thought the plot was good. 
Yes, it fudges around with the history a little bit, but if you set that aside and just look at it from purely a storytelling perspective, I think it's pretty darn good. Uh, again, I give an 8 out of 10 instead of 9 because, or 7. They did a good job. I'm not one, that, I'm not so much into stories and storytelling as I am into uh, getting it right. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. And so I do dock them a couple of points. For not being historically accurate in a couple of places. They could have told the historical story and it would still have been as interesting. Yeah, they could have they yeah. could have just tweaked it a little bit here and there and I think it would have been a much, much better film. It's still good. It's an excellent film. And for, you know, today's Fourth of July, I think it's a wonderful one to sit down and watch. Oh yeah. It's a great one and it really gets into some of the difficulties that people faced, especially the arguments at the beginning. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, over whether or not to be involved in the war. Would you tell me, please, Mr. Howard, why should I trade one tyrant 3,000 miles away for 3,000 tyrants one mile away? Well, as Jeff usually does with films, he goes to Rotten Tomatoes for some user reviews, and we're going to do the same thing this week. Now, Rotten Tomatoes did not disappoint with this film, probably since Mel Gibson ruffles the feathers of many delicate individuals in the industry. But the critic store, the critic score, excuse me, is a mere 62%. However, the audience score, which is usually the more trustworthy one in my opinion, is 81%. So uh, that tells you something right there. A smattering of comments is about what you expect. The user reviews are really polarized. People either love it or hate it. Someone named Nell Minow gives it four out of five stars, but she says, many graphic battle scenes, not for all teens, unquote. Okay, it's a movie about a terrible war. What were you expecting? I'm guessing the teens who fought and died in it had a little more fortitude than you do. So there's that. Uh, John Nesbitt offers faint praise, saying, quote, it has its moments, unquote. <laughs> Dave S. says, quote, terrible film. The battle scenes are totally unrealistic, unquote. Unrealistic how? Well, I guess they don't have people diving into foxholes and running around shooting I, Thompson submachine guns. or anything. I guess, yeah, not enough car chases. Yeah. So anyway, I have questions for that guy. Maybe he's not a fan of Napoleonic tactics? I don't know. Well, in his defense, I will say that they really weren't using exploding uh, shells at oh, the time. Yeah, but and they look great on camera. They look good. Yeah, it's just having a big, you know, eruption so of dirt. So for the time period, there were more than enough explosions, Michael Bay, but right. but if it were totally accurate, it wouldn't have so many. Wouldn't have any. Yeah. 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 Now, on the positive side, Ben A. says, quote, This movie is a great classic. Gibson and cast do a great job acting, and the story is very engaging. Many quotable moments from this movie that ring true, unquote. Well, that's nice. Scott K. says, The depth of character is reason enough to watch this film again and again, unquote. Well, I agree. J.G. sums things up by saying, quote, This movie is great. Never boring, always cool with its action and characters. The villain in this was great, too. I'd call this movie epic. Okay, I like that. Now, the funniest review award goes to Dylan H., who complains, quote, if you take out the obvious American propaganda, The Patriot is one of the most solid war films, unquote. 
if by propaganda he perhaps means history? Well, <laughs> I, I, I kind of agree, I have to say. There's some serious, pro like Mel Gibson waving around the American flag at the end. It's it, a little it, cheesy. It was cheesy. Um, Roland Emmerich likes to get cheesy with American flag uh, yes, he does. Things. Um, I guess he thinks that that's going to get us to stand up and cheer or something. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, there was there was some definite pro-American propaganda and definite anti-British propaganda going on there, mm. like burning down churches and things yeah, like that. Yeah, it's a little extreme. He, he, yeah, melodramatic. It was melodramatic. There was some twirling of mustaches, and nobody wore mustaches in the 18th century, so it, it So they couldn't fit. twirl them. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I... I don't know what country's origin story he would have preferred to see showcased in a film about the American Revolution, but uh, there you go. But it was epic. Oh, yeah. Now, who do you think would like this film? I'm thinking fans of historical epics like Enemy at the Gates or Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I think uh, anybody with a patriotic bent would enjoy it. Absolutely. There's... There's some propaganda, yeah, so, but it's, yeah. you know, definitely a very pro-American uh, film, which shows our rather difficult birth pangs. If you want to get super, super historical, there's a really good movie starring, I think, Nastasia Kinski and... I can't think of his name, but I think, isn't that Revolution? Yeah, Revolution. That's a hard one to watch. It's very difficult, and it's and it takes place over basically an entirety of the revolution. So it's a very, it's a true epic. It goes on for a long time. I can't, Al Pacino. Why can't I never think of him? Yes, it's a, it's a good movie. It's hard to watch, but it really puts you there. Montesariba, Gordo. Well, you're just a damn farm boy. Yes, sir. Barbarossa! No! We have a Facebook page, and it's called Naturally Celluloid Days. Please join us there to comment and discuss the films we cover. We're also on Twitter at celluloid underscore days. We're always looking for film suggestions, and the more strange and unusual, the better. Our email address is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. It's all one word, daysofcelluloid. Feel free to email us for any reason, even if it's just to say hi. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you get this podcast. It will help others find the show. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week for our second film in History Month, the 1982 Western Barbarossa. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. Multipass. Uh, multipass. You know this multipass. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can't.